Hello and welcome to my podcast, Whisper in the Shadows, the true story of a real-life undercover cop. I'm Michael Bates and I was a police officer for 15 years in one of Australia's state police forces. I was also an undercover cop for over two years and all the episodes of this podcast are my true stories of what it's really like to be an undercover cop. Rather, I was Michael Bates. So, full disclosure, Michael is not actually my real name. It was my covert identity I used on most of my operations. Everyone has a notion of what undercover policing is all about. Whether you think they're a narc, a covert operative, a dog, or a UC, most people seem to confuse plainclothes police with being undercover. There is a very big difference though. Most plainclothes police are detectives, and they don't wear a uniform so they aren't as obtrusive in public. Undercover is completely different. You become immersed in the world with your targets. And when you were a police officer, part of your role is to investigate crimes. This means you try and find evidence to prove the person you have arrested has committed that crime. This evidence can consist of physical, verbal, video and witnesses. When you're an undercover police officer though, you are the evidence. And you are the reason someone gets convicted of crimes. That is both exciting and dangerous. So let's get on with the next episode. So let's start episode six, The Targets, part two. In the last two episodes, I gave you the background of who and how I started the journey of each operation with the informant. These people are integral to covert operations and without them, the, uh, the introductions to targets, i.e. the bad guys, just wouldn't happen. So for me, I think that despite the fact that they obviously got caught doing something wrong, they ultimately atoned for it through helping take bigger fish off the streets. The next couple of episodes will focus on the targets of those operations. In May, June, I started my first long-term operation, which was focused on infiltrating a Vietnamese drug syndicate who were selling large amounts of heroin. Now, it's important to create a believable story as to how the informant and I knew each other and why they would be introducing me to their friends or dealers or suppliers. You have to remember that these groups are like little ecosystems. Each part has its own use, and if you introduce a new element into it, the ecosystem stops working as well as it did until that new part is either accepted or expelled. Or more simply, people who sell drugs are worried about the fact that someone they sell to gets caught and will introduce an undercover cop to them to reduce their sentence, which funnily enough is what was, what is what was happening here in this instance. The story we came up with for this operation was I'd met Danny in rehab in a rehab type situation and was buying from him a little bit. I had moved to the other side of the city and had some really good customers now and wanted to expand my business and get some better product or rather larger amounts. I didn't want to have to pay him and the person he was getting it from. It was to be made clear that I didn't shoot up. I sometimes chased a dragon, which refers to smoking heroin, and I had a thriving business and wasn't into buying $100 packets. It is really important to have a safe house and to actually use it. So let me go off track for a little bit here. It is not only important for me to have a story about who I am, but also the car I drive and where my safe house is. And why was it really important for me to have a safe house and to actually use it? Well, it gives you somewhere to meet your targets if you really need to, but also safety and secrecy is obviously a big part. When I started as a UC, I was engaged at the time. My fiance would sometimes stay at my real house, but I also had a flatmate who lived there as well. 
one of the things that I was able to do was get a safe house uh, where I was living just on the outskirts of the city. And um, I'd been there about, I don't know, three weeks, I think. The apartment had a wraparound balcony with a door separating the bedroom access and the main access of the, uh, the balcony. The complex was maybe about 20 years old, was built in the 70s and was getting repainted when I moved in. So there was a gantry that was being used to do this. It was at the back of the building. Now it had been really windy over that week and it was really windy that day night. Just after I moved in, I got woken up that night, uh, I got woken up during the night rather, by the outside door banging. I thought it was just the wind and tried to go back to sleep. Now something stopped me from getting up. The bedroom door was open and I did glance out into the lounge area but couldn't see anything and promptly went back to sleep. When I got up in the morning, I had to go and see my controller really early. Now I hadn't slept well, but as I was walking out, as I was walking out the door, I glanced at the table and noticed that something wasn't, or something just didn't feel right. I've walked over to the table and thought, where's my backpack? It's not here. It's not on the table. I then noticed my laptop wasn't there either. So I'm looking around and the sliding, uh, sliding outside or balcony door was also slightly ajar. And this is, I guess, where they'd been, where they'd broken into, uh, where I'd been broken into and my bag and laptop had been stolen. Here's the thing, usually I keep my gun in my bag, but for some reason, the night before I took it out and hid it in a hiding place. Imagine if it had been in the bag like usual, or even worse, it had been under my pillow like I was considering it putting it for some reason and I'd woken up and gone outside. Here I am pretending not to be a police officer with a laptop that when you booted it up, a big ass police emblem came up on the screen with our property of the state police text before you even have to log in. So, called my controller and told him and obviously the local police turned up and did the routine investigations with the scenes of crime taking fingerprints etc. Apparently there had been about six units in the block that had been broken into over the previous two nights and they were waiting for more reports. The break-in and emergents had used the gantry to come up the building, climb into each balcony and then open mostly unlocked sliding doors into lounge rooms and pilfered what they could find. The noise I'd heard the night before was odds-on the grubs walking along my balcony to find an open sliding door. I learnt to lock every door and window from that night on, regardless if you're on the ground floor or the 17th floor. There were a lot of discussions about if I'd been blown. So mind you, I was three or four weeks into the operation. What if someone sold the laptop on and managed to get into it and saw the target notes, etc. Obviously, they knew that the apartment was a copper was the apartment was a copper's, and if I brought someone there and they had broken in, then they would have known. It was decided that the chances of me being blown were slim, but it would be safer to move apartments, which is what I did. I moved into a nice inner city flash apartment overlooking the city, and, a and it was very, very nice. I really must have been that. It was going to appear that I was doing just nicely out of my pretend drug dealing business. Target three, Tommy Van Dang. The next target I was introduced to was another Vietnamese guy, Tommy Van Dang. Ah, Tommy, the gift that kept on giving. Now, remember when I talked about Lai and how calm and cool and not paranoid he came across? Well, the opposite is Tommy. He was a user and he was always disheveled, jittery, and, general, and, and in general paranoid. 
He didn't trust me ever, I don't think. Tommy was about five foot six. He was skinny with long scraggly hair and a scraggly beard. Wispy someone, you can call it. He had bad teeth from attempts at methadone to get cleaner, I'm guessing, and generally looked unwashed. Now, maybe I was being stereotypical, but if I'd been in uniform, then he is definitely the type of person I would be pulling up every day of the week and going through his pockets because you just know you would have something on him. The first time I met him, again, it was a buy that Danny had to do. Again, it was a $100 packet and Danny went and spoke to him, got the gear and came back to me. So at that point, Tommy saunters up to the car, gets in the back seat. He asked me why I was buying and if I was using. I told him it was none of his business. He either sold to me and made money or he didn't. I wanted to buy larger amounts and Danny said he had the best gear. Tommy didn't take that well. He was suspicious. But he gave me his number though and said I could get on through him. But I needed Danny to be with me. He got out and scurried off and that was that. I had a new target I could contact. The next buy was a few days later. I had agreed to buy a full gram off of him. He asked Danny and myself to pick him up near his house, which I did. So Tommy jumps in the car in the front seat this time. I made sure Danny put him there by getting into the back seat. I didn't trust Tommy and I didn't want him to pull something I couldn't see or wasn't pre-warned about. Now remember, there were no mobile phones or there were mobile phones, but I didn't have one just yet that I was going to use that came in about probably less than a month's time. So I would have to call uh, Tommy and using a phone call his house and then talk to him, tell him that this is what I wanted. I wanted to buy uh, some more drugs. He'd say, okay, meet me here at tomorrow on this street or near this park or wherever it was, um, which was usually on the street or on one of the major streets. And then I would turn up at that time and generally Tommy and then Danny would also be there. Now, I was also having to record these conversations um, I'm not going to tell you how I did that, but they were record, recorded legally without anything actually touching the phone, which was good. For these meets, I was wearing jeans, a t-shirt, and a long sleeve flannelette type shirt. I was also wearing dirty sneakers. Why is this important, you might ask? Well, sometimes you can dress the part, and then there is just one thing that shows that you are what you say you are, like wearing decent shoes and not some crappy dirty ones. The other thing is make sure I had a grubby looking wallet. There were no apps that meant you could keep all your touch and go on your driver's license and your, on your phone and not carry a wallet at all. This was very much a cash business. I had a dingy looking green Velcro, Velcro wallet, which I still have, which had some fake bank cards, my driver's license and some other odds and sods. Also, obviously my cash was in small $10, $20 or $50, $50 denominations at this level, a $100 note was a red flag. And it was being on top of these little things that could ultimately be the difference between success and failure. Okay, Tommy has directed me to drive to the local shopping center as he wanted to get something from the local Vietnamese bakery. It was a short drive, so I parked up in the car park a little bit away from the shops and the view of the people walking around doing the shopping. Danny got out and went to get us all some Vietnamese pastries which I must say were amazing. And ever since that day, I will always seek out a Vietnamese bakery if I'm close to one. With Danny out of the car, it was just Tommy and me. He again asked me what I did and why I was buying gear, if I wasn't using and how I knew Danny. He'd known him for a long time and he said he had never mentioned me. I was feeling nervous because Tommy was asking lots and lots of questions and I had no idea what he'd been told when I wasn't there. 
Anyway, we did the buy. I gave him the money and he gave me the drugs. Now, the reason I was wearing a long sleeve shirt was to hide the fact that I didn't have track marks on my arms. If anyone asked, then I either chased the dragon, which is smoking it, or I shut up between my toes so you couldn't see the marks. This only made Tommy more suspicious. Then he comes back to the car with the pastries and hands them out. I had given him money to go and get them and of course he kept the change. Now, as I said, these pastries were actually very good. So the three of us were sitting in the car, two scruffy looking Vietnamese guys and a scruffy looking white guy in a fairly expensive car actually, parked away from the majority of cars and people and just looking re really sus. So much so that a marked police car drives up in front of us, parking us in and the uniformed police get out. Now, I was fairly calm because, hey, even if I did get caught with the gear, I wasn't getting into trouble and would give me some cred that was lacking with Tommy. The two of them were talking in Vietnamese to each other and both seemed a little frantic. Hey, I said, English, okay? Don't stress, just act calm. They don't know anything and I have the gear on me. The police asked us to get out of the car and go to the front of it. I was able to slide the, the packet uh, that I had of heroin into a hiding place I had in the car and got out. The coppers made us go to the front of the car, asked for our ID, and then asked what we were doing. I said that these guys had told me about the bakery and that's why we were there. The coppers didn't believe me, of course. So they asked all of us to empty our pockets on the front of my car, which we all did. They then took us one by one to the back of the police car to obviously question us separately and also search us a bit more. Danny went first. Couldn't hear what they were saying, but I could see him looking over at us, well, me, and the copper looking over at me and asking him questions. The copper brought him back and then he took Tommy with him. While Tommy was out of earshot, Danny goes, Hey Mick, I told them not to search you because you're an undercover cop and I'm helping you. I said, you said what? He said, yeah, so you don't get caught. I said, fuck me, mate. I've hidden the gear. All you've done is made Tommy more suspicious. What if they say something to him? What if they don't search me now? You are an idiot. Don't ever tell anyone that again. Do you hear me? I was furious. If you've listened to the previous episode, you know it wouldn't be the last time. So the cop brings Tommy back and he then walks up to me. Now, he doesn't take me anywhere. What he does is he just pats me down, says, are you holding? I say no. And he turns around to his mate and goes, okay, come on, let's go. I'm thinking to myself, righto. So... We jump back in the car and Tommy is really, really suspicious. He says to me, how come you weren't searched? I go, mate, how would I know? He goes, are you a cop? I've gone, no, dude, how would I know? Did you get busted? Did you get locked up? No, how would I know why I wasn't searched? You guys didn't have anything. Maybe they thought if, they, if, if these two don't have anything, he's not gonna have anything either. I really don't think he was all that convinced though. I made another couple of buys from him. Each time I had to take him somewhere, give him the money and he would go away and come back with the gear and give it to me. At this point, it's been about two months after that first buy with Tommy and I get a phone call at about 2 a.m. one morning. So this was mid 1995 and the time frame from when I started until then, mobile phones had taken the world by storm and Australia by storm. I went from a pager to a carry bag phone to a Motorola flip phones, you know, those ones that had the big triangle shaped battery on them and the flimsy pull-up antenna. So of course, everyone had my mobile number and called me on it, which was good. I get this phone call 
and the caller is obviously Vietnamese. I could tell that even though I was half asleep. I could also tell it was Tommy. He had a very distinct voice. The one thing I will say about myself is that I am very good at remembering faces and voices. Names, not so much. Anyway, I hear Tommy's voice. I go on to kill you. You are an undercover cop, you dog. I kill you. And he then hung up. So bleary eyed, I thought, fuck, that wasn't good. And I did what anyone else would do and called the number back. Now, Tommy didn't answer, so I tried to get back to sleep. The next day I called Danny and couldn't get him either. I'd moved on from Tommy and further up the chain, so I wasn't too concerned. Besides, he had no idea where I lived. It came time to close that first operation because I was getting married in a matter of weeks. Search warrants and buy bus were set up and executed. I'd heard that a few, v few of the Vietnamese had been raided and that they were rounded up, but no one had actually found Tommy yet. I was on my way to do a buy bust of another target with a group of marked and unmarked cars in tow. I was driving down the main street of one of the inner city suburbs when I spotted Tommy crossing the road in front of me. Yes, he stood out that much. This street even back then was a main arterial road and there were a lot of people walking and a lot of cars coming and going. When I saw him I sped up and literally almost ran him over, screeching to a halt in front of him. My window was down so I reached out, grabbed him by the collar and pulled him into the window. The look of shock and terror on his face was cathartic. When he saw it was me, he was a little, a little less worried and scared. I said, call me a fucking police dog. I will fucking kill you if you ever say that to anyone. He's gone, no Mick, no, it wasn't me. I not think you are police. I said, it fucking was you. If I hear you have been saying I'm a police to anyone, you are dead. Do you understand me? Now, all the while I was looking in my rearview mirror for the marked car that was following me. As soon as I saw it get close, I said, fuck, coppers. I looked him in the eyes and said, remember what I said. Then I literally pushed him down into the middle of the road and took off at a million miles an hour. As I was doing so, I had the detectives on speed dial, called them and said, hey, the guy in the middle of the road, that's Tommy Van Dang. The marked car grabbed him, arrested him and took him back to the station. Once the rest of the busts and raids had finished, which I'll cover in upcoming episodes, I went back to the drug squad offices with my controller to see how the arrests were going. There were multiple interviews going on and some charges had been landed and others were being formulated. There was a considerable amount of both money and drugs recovered and taken off the street, which for me was a good outcome. One of the detectives who had, been, who had nabbed Tommy came and found me. He indicated that they were interviewing Tommy and he was being less than cooperative, to the point where he was saying that he didn't know me and he hadn't met me. They wanted me to go into the interview and confront him about who I was and see if that changed his story. Of course I agreed. So, Tommy is sitting opposite the two detectives across the table with the door to the interview room to his left. One of the detectives asked Tommy, do you know a Michael Bates who you sold heroin to on a number of occasions? His reply was, no, I never sell heroin. One of the detectives gets up and comes to the door, opens it and waves me in. He says to Tommy, do you know this person? Tommy looking at me says, hi Mick. Yes, I know him. That's Mick. I said, hi Tommy. So do you remember meeting me a number of times in that suburb, me picking you up in my car and taking you to places and you selling me heroin? The detective then says, so you do know me? Tommy says, yes. Tommy, Mick is an undercover police officer and you sold him heroin on a number of occasions. To which Tommy replies, no, I not sell him drugs, he give me money. I go and get drugs and then give to him, but I not sell them to him. At that time, I'm at that point, I'm ushered out of the interview trying not to laugh. 
Tommy was charged with possession and trafficking and as far as I'm aware, was convicted and did time. Next episode, I'll explore more interactions I had with the remaining targets. Thank you for listening to Whisper in the Shadows, true stories of a real-life undercover cop. I hope you have enjoyed that episode. In the next episode, we'll explore another exciting operation. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Lastly, if you're an ex-COVID operative or undercover police officer, I would like to chat about your experiences or tell your stories on my podcast, and please get in contact by my email, which is on this page.